HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA's School of Law, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network. Today, I am pleased to be joined by Joanna Frank, who is the Executive Director of the Center for Active Design, a not-for-profit organization committed to transforming design practice to make health a central priority in future development. I first got to know Joanna when I was working as the food policy advisor for the Bloomberg administration, and she directed the city's FRESH program, which we'll talk about later. And I am very pleased to have her joining us here today. Hi, Joanna. Hi. How She's are you? She's here in the studio with me, which is very nice. A nice change for my phone interviews. <laughs> nice to have you here. Thank you. So I want to start off by just having you... Uh, active design isn't a term that everyone's familiar with. So just tell us, what does active design mean? Sure. So active design really is looking at the evidence base um, and how to use that to inform uh, architecture and urban planning design decisions. And really we're looking to influence um, more opportunities for physical activity and food access using design. So the connection between food access in particular and food isn't that obvious. How, how do you describe that connection? Sure. So, I mean, active design looks at the design of neighborhoods, streets, buildings, um, and it is within those kind of uh, design elements that you find retail, so you find grocery stores, you find uh, areas for uh, farmers markets, uh, places within buildings for a community, um, agriculture, um, gardening, for rooftop gardening, uh, which is becoming more popular. Um, and all of those design decisions are within planners and architects and real estate developers. Um, and so we are really promoting design strategies that uh, provide more opportunities for those kind of opportunities for um, food, food retail, food access. So, and how does the center work to promote those concepts? 
So we have looked at the evidence base, mostly health evidence, and translated that into these practical design um, strategies, um, which we presented first as a set of guidelines, which were published actually by New York City in 2010. Um, and that was really a comprehensive look at how you can use the design of the built environment generally to affect uh, the risk of chronic disease, um, which includes obesity. Um, and so looking at uh, active transportation, active recreation, um, active buildings, which is really about the vertical circulation of buildings, and then food access also. And even built environment is something that is talked about a lot in the food context, but I don't think everyone knows what it means. So how would you describe food environment? I mean, built environment. Food environment also, actually, sure. we can talk about, but built environment. Yeah, so the built environment is really um, the makeup of your neighborhood. So the design of the streets, the design of the intersections, um, how dense the buildings are within that street, uh, what the kind of the ground floor feels like as far as, you know, can you look into the ground floor of buildings? All of those things really make a difference to the feel and the design of your built environment. So your neighborhood, basically. So um, as you referenced a little bit in talking about your the principles of active design, design and architecture have always been integral to the development of cities, of course. But I, what isn't as obvious is how architecture has to respond to the health needs of cities and also contributes to the health outcomes in cities. How have the changing health problems of cities influenced city planning and architecture? So yeah, this actually, this brings up a, a great opportunity to talk about the precedent for active design. So the, the, um, the population used to, um, the majority of the population used to die from infectious disease up until about 1940. Um, so it was well over 60% of the population dying of infectious disease. And what was interesting about the response from government to the infectious disease um, epidemics of that time was that there was really a built environment approach to how to address those. So we looked at how to, um, how to, how to offset uh, overcrowding in lower Manhattan because that was leading to all kinds of uh, infectious diseases. Like how to, tuberculosis or... Yes, tuberculosis, right. cholera. Um, how to uh, get clean water to uh, the people living in the cities. And so uh, reservoirs and the Croton Viaduct and so on were designed for New York City and eradicated waterborne disease almost overnight. Um, and then parks. One of the big rationales for parks, including Central Park, was to provide lungs for the working man, I believe, is the quote from the time. Um, so there was this understanding that the design of, of our neighborhoods, the design of our city, could have a very positive impact on, on the um, health of people living in the cities, and it did. So there was a great, um, a, a great precedent of using built, the built environment to, to look at, address public health. It's so um, interesting about parks, because I think you, you definitely think the health connection is about physical activity, but... You know, to hear you talk about in those terms that it's a, it was also about space and sanitary con conditions and fresh air for people is a, is a fascinating connection. Yeah, and, and it's great that it was it was recognized at the time. So that was that was interesting. Um, and so when now our population seventy five percent more of our population actually uh, dies of chronic disease, um, this is a new challenge that we're facing. And and really, we ten years ago maybe started looking at is there a role for the, the designers of our spaces, of our streets, of our buildings, to play in offsetting this public health crisis in the same way that design had really been used to offset um, the issues around infectious disease. And, and that was the kind of the beginning of active design. And so to that question, is there a way for design to contribute to um, the mitigation of chronic disease, the 
answer, I guess, that led to the founding of the center was yes, right? Yes. We hope so, yeah. So <laughs> can you spell that out a little bit more? I know that part of the history of the center is that the program came out of the obesity prevention effort under the Bloomberg administration and specifically the Mayor's Obesity Task Force. But what is that connection between obesity and the work that you're doing? So the the research base, the health research base, about 10 years ago, started to really indicate that the design of where you live, uh, where you work, um, where you go to school, uh, was having a really dramatic impact on your risk of chronic disease. Um, and the evidence base has continued to develop that some of the highest risk factors for developing chronic disease are around uh, inactivity um, and lack of access to nutritious food and a poor diet. Um, and so those are the two main risk factors that we consider. Another risk factor is smoking. It's not something that we, you know, that's not our thing, um, but, but still important. Um, so the two big issues that we're looking at is how do you reduce the risk of chronic disease by increasing the physical activity and increasing access to nutritious, affordable food. And, and it was really the beginning of this research base and translating it into design strategies that, that became active design. Um, and what is nice now that this has been going long enough that um, a whole new generation of buildings um, have either been built, uh, streets have been redesigned using these principles, and we're now able to do evaluations and research to see if if this is actually having a positive impact. So if you impact. actually see more uh, physical activity in residents or if you actually see different behavior patterns, essentially, Absolutely. you're able to measure that. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things I think about these concepts is, of active design is that they can operate a little bit in an invisible way. So we can hear about this and have it sound really nice, but not necessarily know it when we see it or be conscious of it when we see it. So I'm wondering if there are um, examples that you can give that many New Yorkers may have encountered or be familiar with that um, reflect active design. Sure. So, I mean, my office is actually next to a wonderful example of active design, and that's the New Fulton Station, uh, the subway station. So there is a lot of evidence, a lot of health evidence, um, behavioral um, research around that if you see a staircase um, at, before you see the elevator, that you are many times more likely to actually take the stairs if you're going to the first and second floor. Um, if you if you put glazing in the doors and you can again see the stairs. And explain what glazing is. Glass. Yes, that's one of those things <laughs> I learned when I first started working with city planners who told me, talked about glazing and glazing. Sorry. <laughs> and then they said, that means glass window. Yes. <laughs> okay, glass. thanks. Glass windows. Um, so also, if you have like beautiful design elements, I mean, we, we are really affected by design. One of the things about active design is we want to entice you to want to walk down that street. We want you to want to go to the farmer's market because it's a great experience. It's convenient and it's something that you want to actually feel. Like, what does it feel like to walk down that shady street with all that interesting, um, uh, can I say facades, with all those interesting <laughs> uh, storefronts? Yes. <laughs> um, and so we know what impacts people's behavior, people's choices. Um, and a lot of those um, pieces of evidence are, are the, behind the design strategies. Or so, even art. I know I read uh, in your materials about using art to pull people into a more physically active space or way of uh, transporting themselves. Absolutely. So some of the just really kind of tangible and easy. I mean, this stuff is not rocket science. This stuff is 
really just good design, but understanding the impact it has on behavior is the thing that makes it you know, really important to prioritize. So you are many times more likely to walk down the street if there are trees, if there's visual interest, so there's kind of an interesting facade, or if there's an interesting destination at the end of the street, if there are benches, which is kind of counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. But if you think about um, kind of all ages of the population that are using the city, um, if, if you have benches, people are more likely to set out on that journey if they know that they can actually pause along the way. Um, and that's actually really important with grocery stores. If mm-hmm. people are walking to a grocery store and they have somewhere to pause along the way, then that, that will actually increase so uh, the distance. So different than the suburban model that we're used to with the sprawl and just a huge parking lot usually in a big mm. building. Yeah, um, What is it? I actually haven't been to the new Fulton Street station yet, and I used to go to that station so often, but what is it about this, that station that makes it active? So, I mean, it's the design elements. It's really glorifying the stair and the vertical transportation. So the vertical, um, the way that you move up and down that space vertically, which in New York City is a very vertical city anyway, because all of our buildings, most of our buildings, not Roberta's, uh, (laughs) most of our buildings are vertical. Um, And so you have the opportunity for wonderful staircases um, and uh, ways of actually the Fulton, the Fulton Center, they get light all the way deep down into that subway station, which also um, we know behavior is very much affected by natural light as well. So that's a, that's a big positive. Um, and, so, and then signage also. So telling people if you take the stairs, you burn calories, or if you take the stairs, you know, you will add X number of years to your life. Maybe that's Mm-hmm. <laughs> We'd like to say that, um, but if you if you have motivational signage for people and telling them, just reminding them, prompting them mm-hmm. um, to take the stairs, we know also research tells us that that, that will increase uh, the number of people using the stairs, and it, it continues to increase the number of people. It isn't just a a, a once off, a one right. off. So. so it's a lot of the same kind of nudge concepts that are used in. other work on food and promoting healthy food um, or reformulating school lunch lines to put the fruit at the beginning as opposed to at the end um, and and using the data to find out how effective those changes really are. So I want to come back to food as uh, more specifically and drill Mm -hmm. down in some of the specific examples that where these kinds of principles have actually impacted the accessibility of food and also water. I know or easily accessible drinking water is uh, one of the things that you're working to promote also. And one of the projects that you have recognized uh, is a school that uses active design to cultivate health. So how does that school look different than the typical American school? So um, this school is actually in Virginia, the Buckingham County uh, Primary School. And it, uh, we actually we gave it a Center for Active Design Excellence Awards, which we just started last year. So um, the school itself, the story is interesting because um, the school was planned, but, but before any design was started, um, the, uh, the school authority actually worked with a couple of different schools of medicine um, to look at the grade school population and to see what their most pressing health needs were. Um, and that, that isn't a typical design yeah, process. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So what they found was that, and then they had high levels of obesity, which is why they were prompted to look at, you know, what, what, what were the issues um, and what was really looking, what was leading to this childhood obesity level. And they found that there was a real lack of access to food within the community. Um, there's a lack of understanding of nutrition. And then there was just this lack of um, interaction with, with food and with growing and with plants and with the whole process. Um, and so the, the amazing um, leap <clears throat> excuse me, was made, and that was of looking at the health evidence and actually decided to use the school design to um, 
to uh, address the childhood obesity issue. And that is not a leap that most people make. So the the school was a brand new building. It's a beautiful school. Um, but it, the emphasis of the school is all around food. So there's a food lab. Uh, there is a wonderful thing called a tasting garden where the, the, the children get to just pick leaves of all kinds of edible plants just as they pass by. And they pop them in their mouths and they mm-hmm. have like a basil leaf on their way to math or something. <laughs> but I just love that proximity of the children's daily lives. And really what we talk about is just daily routines. We're not talking about going to the gym. We are talking about your daily routines, just that daily um, opportunities to to kind of have a more kind of more physically active and, and a better better opportunities for good food. So what, what happens in the food lab at that school? So they learn all about nutrition and they get to cook themselves and they get to actually there's a garden also there's a there's a, a vegetable garden that the school that the children tend mm-hmm. and they get to then prepare the food in their food lab and learn all about the nutrient contents of that food. There's signage everywhere which is also beautifully designed which of course appeals to us mm-hmm. but a beautifully designed signage about the benefits of this, about the benefits of drinking water and climbing the stairs and being active and but it's not done in a way that is kind of you need to eat your greens it's done in a very celebratory way and it's beautifully like I said beautifully designed did Um, you learn anything about how the students had responded to the school and the giving of the award so there's actually an ongoing evaluation um, which is being funded by the uh, center for disease control so it's a kind of a large-scale evaluation and I mean certainly from the anecdotal evidence the study isn't finished it's been incredibly positive, incredibly well received, and there's wonderful pictures of children like mm-hmm. running around, looking very happy, chewing basil leaves as they go to math. I know, <laughs> I love it. So it's good. Great. So we're going to take a short break and then come back and talk about a couple more examples of uh, food being integrated with design. by Fote. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com Hi, we're 
We're back on Eating Matters. I'm Kim Kessler, and today we're talking about the connections between active design and design principles and access to healthy food with Joanna Frank, who is the executive director of the Center for Active Design here in New York. So, Joanna, before the break, we were talking about actual examples of where these design principles uh, have have impacted healthy food access. And I want to turn now to housing, because that's another place that your organization has highlighted examples of how design uh, can incorporate concepts of healthy food access or um, opportunities for more food access into their development. So where have you seen that be successfully achieved? So there's a wonderful project in the South Bronx. Um, it's called Arbor House. Um, and it's actually um, a, a great example of using all of the active design principles that are applicable to housing. Um, but some of the, the really fabulous food access um, design strategies that we used is that there's a a 10,000-square-foot hydroponic farm on the top of this affordable housing development, um, which is not normal, <laughs> not <laughs> typical at all. Um, so that's a, that's a great um, a, uh, opportunity, really, for that population to have more access to leafy, specifically leafy vegetables. Who runs the farm? Um, it's actually it's run by a group out of Boston. I'm not sure um, of their name, but they are kind of a professional farming outfit. Um, the residents, however, of Arbor House, who don't get to participate in the farming, but they do um, get the opportunity to have um, boxes of the leafy greens as a as a community supported agriculture um, uh, endeavor, um, and so that that's a, a great opportunity in that neighborhood, which really has a real lack of opportunities to get leafy mm-hmm. vegetables, and there aren't many supermarkets, and they're not very affordable, and so on. So, so one of the things that um, ha- that you've also talked about in the work of the Center for Active Design is thinking beyond one building or one structure. But when um, you look at it from an urban planning context or city planning context, the role of thinking about food retail and healthy food access into that work. Um, and your prior work with the Fresh Program in New York City is a good example of that. So, can you um, share a little bit about what? the FRESH program was and how that connects to this design kind of work that you're doing now. Absolutely. So FRESH is the Food Retail Expansion to Support Health program. Um, It was started uh, under the last administration. It was a multi-agency program that really looked at how to use um, city planning, zoning specifically, um, and tax incentives uh, to encourage uh, grocery store owners to actually locate in lower-income neighborhoods, um, and specifically the neighborhoods of the city that had um, a, a lack of existing supermarkets. Um, so that was um, a program that I think was very successful in encouraging a number of new stores in, in neighborhoods that previously lacked access. Um, so that's, that's certainly part of kind of what we still um, so we still want to promote that program. Um, we also very much work with real estate developers, especially affordable housing developers, um, to ensure that their ground floor spaces have been designed so that they can actually house a grocery store. Um, because what we were finding is that many of the vacant ground floor spaces in low-income neighborhoods um, actually had not had been designed into smaller spaces that you couldn't then convert into a grocery store. So although there was a lot, a lot of vacant space, it wasn't appropriate for grocery stores. Um, so that is another kind of thing that we really try to encourage um, when we're working directly with real estate developers. And why would that be? So some of the things that you've talked about, the way that you 
your organization is dedicated to promoting these concepts and um, getting designers and planners and architects to think about them, why would it be that, you know, the natural orientation is towards these smaller spaces or we don't put stairs in a prominent place? Like, how did it get to be the way that it is that you're sort of working to undo now? Because it seems so obvious that it would be great to have a grocery store. Um, I actually lived in an apartment building that had a grocery store on the ground floor, and it was great. Sure. <laughs> so, but, you know, so what? what is it that has happened along the way in architecture or planning where some of this has, you know, not been recognized previously? So I think there's a, there's a couple of, well, there's multiple reasons, but um, I actually, before I did a fresh, was a real estate developer. So I'll, I'll give you some mm-hmm. of the economic reasons why it happened. Um, the smaller spaces in retail space, the smaller retail spaces um, are um, ready to mitigate uh, risk. So if you chop up your ground floor space into th- 2,000 square foot space mm-hmm. um, and then you rent three out of four of them, obviously that's a, a far less risky project than if you have an 8,000 square foot space and you can't rent it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a matter of numbers and underwriting um, that typically that is, yeah, that makes you know, sense. leads to that decision. Um, the floor height also, you know, people minimize the floor height maybe of retail space um, because of cost again, but actually to make it more desirable for a grocery store, you would need to have a substantial ceiling height. Um, so that's another big issue that, that can deter grocery mm-hmm. stores. Um, I think that the stair issue is interesting because we have these amazing examples of monumental stairs from 100 years ago. Um, prior to elevators. Um, So Grand Central is the one we're always citing. So I actually have no idea where the elevators are in Grand Central Mm -hmm. because I never look for them because I want to walk up that stair again. It it has all of these amazing design elements that we now can actually quantify and know that there's all these different behavioral triggers behind the the design of that. Stairs really um, became secondary to the elevator when that became popular, Mm -hmm. um, when it became possible to put elevators into uh, residences when the cost was... Um, you know, when it became, uh, so it wasn't cost prohibitive anymore. And then the stairs were just uh, relegated to being about fire egress and safety mm-hmm. and exiting a building. And there was really no celebration of the stairs. And then they just, I mean, it, they were pushed to the least valuable space in a building and they were totally bound by codes as far as fire codes and so on. Um, and that was their role. They mm-hmm. were seen as secondary to the elevator. The elevator was the primary way of moving up and down a building. Um, and you know, I think that was in an era where the car was king and the elevator was king, and and that that was kind of you know that's how we progressed. Um, what we're now seeing, the unintended consequences of, of those design decisions to make our cities you know kind of prioritize car movement rather than pedestrian movement or bike movement, um, which is kind of where we get into what we get into when we talk about active transportation, um, was really this celebration of technology and of, of using. Um, our, our, our tools new to, kinds to move of, around, yeah, our new yeah. toys. Right. So, um, so, but we, you know, obviously we've now got to the point where we need to start to really be conscious of, of the decisions we're making because um, the current generation of children um, will have a, they will have a shorter lifespan than our generation if we don't reverse the obesity crisis that we have. Are there things that you learned in your work on the Fresh program as director of the Fresh program that? are relevant to your work today or that give you insights about the challenges of doing this kind of development? Sure. So I think active design is absolutely a multidisciplinary approach. So we translate that 
health research across many different professions. So, and, and that's the same with FRESH. So for the FRESH program, it had multiple different agencies. You had public and private sector partners for that. And you really t- needed to be able to move between those different professional interests, the professional language between each person, um, the priorities of each different uh, profession. Um, and that's the same with active design. We're working with health professionals. We're working with design professionals. We're working with uh, real estate developers, um, and we're working with, uh, say, housing authorities. I mean, everybody's interests are very different, um, mm-hmm. and it's important that we are able to speak about this in a way that will really resonate with the audience that we're working with. So we work very closely with real estate developers, um, and that's a different set of um, ideas, really, for why they might be interested in, imply, in mm-hmm. applying these than when we speak to a, a city. Or a, or a Department of Health. Or, Absolutely. Right. Um, and so I think that the idea around design being an elite, um, an elite good has changed a little bit in, ter- in the overall world because there's been this great democratization of design that we've seen in consumer products. But when it comes to buildings and architecture, I would say there's maybe still a perception that uh, that's more expensive, that that's not going to be as readily available. Is that a pushback that you get? And and what are the facts behind that? Is this something, are these principles that can be affordably incorporated into all kinds of development? So that was some of the initial pushback that the original set of guidelines um, received was that this was going to be too expensive to um, incorporate all of these different design strategies into, um, especially into affordable housing. So affordable housing probably has the tightest budget of of any um, other typology of building. Um, And so we actually took that head on. And the first supplement, the first active design book we published after the main guidelines was really an analysis of the cost of implementing active design specifically for affordable housing with the rationale that if we can afford to do it within affordable housing, it, it is therefore we can you know justify it in any other typology. Um, and so what we found was with a, a broad analysis actually, which was countrywide, um, there were a lot of strategies that as long as you implemented at the outset of a project, uh, so before the project had really been designed and certainly before it had been financed, um, that there were a lot of things you could do that had no cost. So locating the stair in a central position doesn't cost any more money when you're just moving it around on a piece of paper. Um, so, and that, you know, if you're creating really desirable and well-lit spaces in the outside that then could be used for community gardens, for instance, again, that's, that's a, something that you can do at the outset of a project without a cost. Um, there were then another set of strategies that had a cost, but the cost was a low, low cost um, and certainly something that you could afford to do um, if you made them a priority over some other design decisions. Um, and then there are... There are strategies that have very high cost. Um, the uh, hydroponic farm at Arbor House, obviously, that was a, a significant cost. That wasn't part of the typical affordable housing budget, um, but actually it was funded by local elected officials. So there was enough of an mm-hmm. argument made that this was going to be great, uh, you know, a greater good, mm-hmm. a great benefit for the community, that funds were able to be raised for that. So the cost issue was a big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we now work with a lot of private real estate developers nationally, um, we were actually working with the First Lady uh, Michelle Obama's team at Partnership for Healthy America to identify affordable housing developers nationally who will commit to using active design within the design of affordable housing. Um, and so there's this real understanding that this is, this is an area where real estate development and childhood obesity prevention 
actually interact and we can we can maybe make some meaningful gains right. as far as such an interesting connection and great to hear about that work that you're doing but you you really do not often hear those things in the same sentence real no. estate development and childhood obesity <laughs> so <We try>. <laughs> you're working on changing that so uh, it's very exciting so i want to ask you before we wrap up are there you know one or two anecdotes you're talking about all the data collection that you're in the midst of and and that example as well of the report that you did on to answer the cost question but are there one or two anecdotes that you can think of that give you confidence um, that the projects that you're working on and the principles that you're working to promote work? Yeah, so I, I think that actually Arbor House, again, um, the, the study is actually being done by Mount Sinai School of uh, Medicine. Um, and we've only seen the qualitative results of that uh, evaluation so far. And the just the comments and the the, the attitudes that you hear coming from the people living in the building are so positive and so exciting. And what we're also hearing is that it's very much led by the children. Mm-hmm. So the children in the building want to go and take the stairs. They want to use the exercise equipment. They want to eat. Maybe they don't, but <laughs> we would like them <laughs> the to <CSA> eat. <laughs> exactly. For, this, for the purposes of this. Um, but maybe they want to participate in the cooking classes that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but So it's great to hear that, that there's enthusiasm um, and there's wonderful individual stories of some of the residents um, and how it's been incredibly uh, kind of life-changing, actually, um, to live in a building that actually prioritizes health, that, that it isn't just the building, it actually translates into other decisions that they're making. So if they're out at the grocery store, they are more kind of cognizant of the decisions they're making around food. If they're taking, you know, if they're going to work, maybe they will take the stairs where before they would have always taken the elevator. At least what they're saying is that they're actually more conscious of the decisions that they're making and that, that, that it is a decision to take the elevator that there's in a stair there. So that's really exciting to hear. Um, also, the numbers that we see as far as the street improvements, um, we know that it's increasing the amount of people walking on the streets. Um, we know that that is also then increasing retail sales, and so it has an, a positive economic benefit as well. Uh, so the data actually although maybe a geeky anecdote, mm-hmm. seeing the data is actually really exciting that, that we can actually measure that there has been an increase in yeah. um, physical activity. And as you know, there's actually beginning to be a decrease in childhood obesity levels, which, That's I right. mean, there's many reasons for that, but hopefully um, we have some small part to play in that. Yeah, well, there's no one answer to that. So it's uh, excellent to hear about your work and this ad- additional strategy. Um, that's Joanna Frank, the executive director of the Center for Active Design, who, and a lot of these materials and resources are available on your website, right, Joanna? Yes, yeah, a free download of any of the resources. Um, and then there's a lot of other information that's uh, Case available studies there. and yep. uh, inspiration for yes. thinking about good design. Uh, so, Joanna, thank you so much for joining us today. That brings us to the close of this episode. I want to thank Tim Archer for our show music. The show is available as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher and here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. 
To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 